my name is Paul Cook. The message on this tape will deal with the subject of why we believe the Bible is inspired of God. The material is presented not with the belief that uh, in what I can say in the few minutes on this tape, I can convince anybody who does not already believe that the Bible is inspired. But it is presented uh, with the belief that uh, someone who does not already believe can be motivated to rethink their position and to examine the available evidence on this subject. Any serious study of the Bible has to deal with the question of its source. Unlike 99.999% of all books, the Bible claims from the beginning to the end to be the record of God's revelation of himself to man. The Bible acknowledges and even emphasizes man's freedom of choice, but it claims that all of man's history happens within a framework of a sovereign God who is involved in the affairs of man and is patiently bringing about his will. The statements concerning the inspiration of the Bible are so interwoven in the context that it is impossible to study the Bible as just a history book or just a book of ancient literature. It is either inspired by God or it is written by deluded men who are either tremendously deceived or willful liars. It's impossible to build completely with this subject in 30 minutes, but we can give at least some of the evidences that have caused millions through the centuries of different cultures, different languages, to come to respect the Bible as the most unique book in the world. In fact, a book so unique that it cannot be explained separate from supernatural inspiration. The first problem in discussing belief of, in God or belief in the Bible is the problem of belief on the basis of faith. We have not seen God with our own physical eyes. We have not touched him. We have not experienced him with our physical senses. Also, we have not met any of the people who wrote the Bible. We have not experienced their history. We have not experienced their culture or their language. We have not seen the miracles they claim to have seen. Can we really know and be confident about the events we have not physically experienced? Uh, can knowing by faith ever permit confidence and assurance? First, let us note that the nature of being finite demands that most of what humans believe is by faith. Uh, believing by faith is not something that is simply reserved for the Bible. Everything that happened before our birth, if believed, will be on the basis of faith. We believe in Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, all on the basis of faith. Most of what happens on any given day must be believed in by faith, we can only experience a very finite part of all that is happening. The question becomes one of evidence. Can evidence be so convincing that we are able to have a confident faith about events we have not seen? 
We obviously believe that it can. We show this by our study, recording, and teaching of history. In fact, the study of American history is a required course in our public elementary schools, high schools, and colleges. We also show our belief in the power of evidence through our court and jury systems. On a daily basis, we set accused men and women free, send them to jail, and even execute some. We do all of this on the basis of evidence. You see, the God who created us gave us the intellectual capacity to understand and evaluate evidence. In this study on the inspiration of the Bible, we are assuming belief in a supreme being and creator. According to the Bible, there is so much evidence in the universe, galaxies, solar system, earth, nature, and mankind that man is without excuse for unbelief in a creator. Uh, for example, uh, David in the Old Testament made this observation in Psalms 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. David said that although he could not see God, that the creation itself declared a creator. The heavens declare the glory of a supreme being, a creator. Something doesn't come from nothing. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Uh, he said what we see in the skies and the stars and the sun and the moon uh, can be thought of as speech that night after night display knowledge of God. He said there's no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. Uh, that this information, this evidence goes to the ends of the world. Uh, David in Psalms 139 verse 14 looked at himself and said, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. David was impressed with the complexity of the human body. Your eyes more complex than any camera. Your brain more complex than any computer. Everything about your body including one single solitary cell more complex than anything that man has been able to do with his own mind. No wonder then that David made the statement in Psalms 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Paul said it this way in Romans, the first chapter in verse 20. For since the creation of the world God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Uh, notice what Paul said. The eternal God, although invisible, is declared by the things that he has made so that man is without excuse. Paul's reasoning is that we're intellectual beings. We have the power of observation. We know that something cannot come from nothing. We know that for every effect there is a cause. We know that the effect has to be 
less than the cause, that for every effect there is a cause that is greater than the effect behind it. And so when we look at this magnificent universe with its galaxies, we look at our own solar system and we look at Earth with all its complexities and the laws of nature and we look at man, there is no way, according to David and according to Paul, that man can honestly behold this and then simply say, it's a matter of chance. Something came from nothing. Innate dead objects somehow gave birth to life. David would say, only a fool can reason in that way. The purpose of this tape is not to deal in that area because most people in our society have made these observations and do indeed believe in a supreme being. But for those who would like to study further on this subject, I would be interested in studying with you in the area of the existence of God. There are also many works out by scientists, many scientists who at one time were atheists and who came to believe in God simply through the field of science itself. And so if you're interested in that area, contact me. I can furnish you with free information and would love to take the time to study with you. But the purpose on this tape is the study of the evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. Let me read a statement to you and, uh, concerning the Bible, and I read this from a book by Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict on page 18. The Bible was written, he makes the observation, over about 1,600 years, and by the way, that's to put it in the form that, that we have right now. I believe it would go further back than that amount of time. Written over about 60 generations, the form in which we have it now. Written by 40-plus authors, probably a lot more, from every walk of life, including kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars, etc., Moses was a political leader trained in the universities of Egypt. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. Joshua was a great military general. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to a king. Daniel was a prime minister. Luke was a doctor. Solomon a king. Matthew a tax collector. Paul a well-educated an intelligent Jewish rabbi. These people wrote in different places. Moses wrote in the wilderness. Jeremiah did a lot of his writing in a dungeon. Daniel on a hillside and in a palace. Paul inside prison walls did his best writing. Luke wrote while traveling. John wrote from the Isle of Patmos. Others in the rigors of military campaign wrote parts of the Bible. It was written at different times. David wrote during war. Solomon wrote in a time of peace. It was written during different moods. Some writing from highs of joy and others writing from the deaths of sorrow and despair. Written on three continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. Written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Its subject matter includes hundreds of controversial subjects. A controversial subject is one 
which would create opposing opinions when mentioned or discussed. You see things like homosexuality, uh, the heterosexual experience in the sexual realm, uh, divorce, bestiology, all of the various uh, sexual expressions. These are not only controversial matters in the 20th century. Uh, they've been controversial as long as man has been here and able to express himself in writing. And they were controversial when the writers of the Bible dealt with the subject. Do you really believe today that we could take some of our controversial subjects and find even within one political party such a large group of men that would perfectly and 100% agree on those matters? And yet that's the interesting thing, one of the interesting things that we find in the Bible, that these people with different educations, different cultures, speaking in different language, different periods of time, and yet when it comes to morality, they speak in unison. And they not only speak in unison, but they speak in a way that for centuries has rang a chord of truth within the human conscience. This is so much the case that Paul made the observation in Romans, the second chapter, beginning with verse 12, that the Gentile who never even read the law of Moses, in and of his own conscience, his inner nature, often came to the same conclusions of the law, so much so that his own conscience would either condemn or excuse him before God. You see, one of the great evidences that has impressed people through the centuries is that when they have read the Bible, that they have found themselves inwardly agreeing with the morality that was expressed, even though it stepped on their toes. And they've also been impressed with what Josh McJow points out in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, how that so many men in different cultures, different times, different educational backgrounds, different languages, and different situations could be so completely in agreement. Well, it's not just on morality that these people are in agreement. The concept of God that we recognize in our society, one creator God, uh, a God that cannot be represented with a graven image, uh, we're not overly impressed with this because we've been, we've been reared with this concept in our society. But you realize that when Moses first wrote and gave us what is the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, this concept of one God who created everything that is, a spiritual God that cannot be seen, a God who loves and has mercy and forgives, who's just and, and righteous, and who's interested in the affairs of men and for the betterment of man. This concept was unique in the world of Moses. He sure didn't learn that in Egypt, and he didn't learn it in the land of Canaan. It was unique to Moses and the children of Israel. 
Oh, it was around from the very beginning, but man over the years had twisted and in fact and perverted in many ways. And in fact, many of the things within the Bible can be seen in a perverted form in many of the pagan religions. But only in the in the Bible. Not only through Moses, but through all the prophets that would follow, and then with the apostles into the New Testament, do we find this concept of one universal God that created everything that is, created man in his own image, a God of love and mercy and kindness and forgiveness, along with being a God of justice and righteousness. This concept, unique to the Bible. And it's, there's something about it that has always sounded more appealing, more right, than the gods of sticks and stones and rocks and the gods that warred and fought and, and fornicated and fought with one another. Uh, in fact, it's like comparing night with day in the spiritual and the moral realm. Do you know that in the pagan religions, morality and worship of God were divorced? Uh, religion and worship of the pagan gods were one thing. Morality was something else. This, this whole idea of, of tying morality and, and belief in God and, and worship to God together is unique to the Israelite God, uh, the God of the, the Old Testament scriptures and the God of the New Testament scriptures. So we have a unique quality here in its unity uh, in its harmonious content, considering that it's written by so many people over so many years in different languages and cultures that sets the Bible apart and gives it a uniqueness that does not exist with any other book in the world. Another unique feature of the Bible, uh, and one that has attracted attention to it from the very beginning, is the, the fact of prophecy or the predictive element within the scriptures. Moses made it clear to the children of Israel that after him that God would raise up other prophets from among them like Moses, Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. He knew that they would want to know how do we recognize whether a man is a prophet of God or whether he's just pulling this information off the top of his head. And so in verse 22, Moses makes the observation that when the prophet speaks, if what he says does not follow, then you know he's spoken presumptuously. He's not a prophet of God. A mark of the prophet of God would be that he spoke with assurance that what he said would come to pass and the proof of the pudding would be in the eating. It would come to pass. And it would come to pass in verification of that spokesman as a prophet of God. Now, this element begins with Moses and goes all through the prophets of the Old Testament. You know, it's interesting when looking at these prophecies, and especially I, as a Christian, think of the multitude of prophecies and types and shadows and, and symbols about Jesus that are in the Old Testament. There's no one of these prophecies that just blow your mind away. 
There's no one of them that just is so astounding that you say, this, this is it. it. It has to be from God because of this one particular prophecy or type or shadow uh, in the Bible that, that meets its fulfillment. You know, it's like um, evaluating evidence, determining whether somebody committed a particular crime. And you're made aware of the fact that this person's fingerprints uh, was on the instrument that killed whoever was killed. But that in itself uh, would not prove that he committed the crime. After all, maybe somebody stole his gun. And then another evidence is that two witnesses uh, saw our man uh, go into the building where the individual was killed about 15 minutes before he was killed. Uh, again, that in and of itself wouldn't prove that he was the murderer. Two more witnesses see him come out about five minutes after the shots. And then there was DNA uh, testing that ties this man into the crime scene and, and with the person that was killed. Well, you can see what we're doing. Uh, there's no one of those evidences that would convict this person. But we can continue to build the evidence to the extent that the evidence becomes so overwhelming that even though we were not there and we didn't see it, we know who committed that crime. Juries daily evaluate information like this and make decisions on it. In the same way with the prophecies in the Old Testament, specifically let's deal with some of them about the Messiah. To read a particular prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for example, or to read a prophecy that he would begin his teaching in Galilee of the Gentiles, or to read a, a teaching that he would be a great king, or he would be a righteous man, or he would bring righteousness to the earth, or to read a prophecy that he would be killed, or another one that he would conquer death. There would be those that would be victorious through him. On the one hand, he would be a king. On the other hand, a suffering servant. And we could go on and on. No one of these prophecies are overwhelming. But when we put them all together, we begin to see something that becomes overwhelming. You know, it's like pulling a, a marked coin from among ten. We do it one time. The chances are one in ten that we can pull that marked coin, and we pull it out one time, but that's not too remarkable. I mean, after all, one in ten is not bad odds. But then we pull that same marked coin out two times in a row, and it's a little more remarkable because the odds are one in a hundred of pulling that marked coin out two times in a row. But then we pull that marked coin out from among the ten three times in a row, and it becomes even more remarkable because the odds are one in a thousand that you're going to pull that marked coin out three times in a row from ten coins. But then we pull that marked coin out still a fourth time, four times in a row from among the ten, 
And the odds are becoming very remarkable because the odds against this happening are 1 in 10,000. And then we pull it out five times in a row. And the odds of doing that are 1 in 100,000. Six times in a row. The odds of doing that are 1 in a million. Seven times in a row. The odds of doing this are 1 in 10 million. Eight times in a row. The odds of doing that are 1 in a hundred million. Nine times in a row. The odds of doing that are 1 in a billion. Ten times in a row. 1 in 10 billion. Do you get the picture? There are hundreds of predictive statements in the Old Testament. Types and shadows. Direct statements. Indirect statements. Looking forward to a great king, a great priest, a great messiah, a great time when righteousness would go out to all the earth. A time when man would be given the remission of sins. Where he would be born preceded by a great forerunner that would announce him, rejected by the majority of his own people, killed, raised on the third day. All, along with many other statements, predicted. And when we put them all together, we begin to look at it and say, how could this happen except these men were guided by the mind of God? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. No one of them fantastic by themselves, impressive, but not enough to allow you to believe without a doubt in your mind. But give us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the Apostle Paul, the well-educated Jewish rabbi, very intelligent, who believed that Jesus was an imposter and tried to stamp out Christianity and, and then made a 180 degree about face and writes 13 letters in the New Testament. Give us Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and the Apostle Paul. And give us Peter and James and Jude. And then we read their witness and we digest it and we compare it with what was told by the multitude of prophecies in the Old Testament. And I suggest to you, we come up with a body of evidence that is of such a nature that it could not exist in the way that it does, except God be involved. There are many evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. In fact, there are a number of excellent books on this subject. I hope that enough has been said to encourage you to study more in this area.